Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, special welcome if you are new or visiting with us, uh, or if you're catching up with us online. We're so thankful that uh, you're here and worshiping with us this morning. Um, I'm going to be sitting one more time, hopefully only, uh, with this foot injury. Hopefully by next time I'm up here, uh, we will not have to worry about that. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump right into our message for this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning and for this chance to come together and to worship you. We know that you are worthy of worship. You have proved that to us in your... um, in the way that you've loved us, in the way that you've created us, in the way that you have shown justice and mercy uh, and everything else that you are, that are part of your character and that you've shown us so clearly. So Lord, remind us of that this morning. Help us to see that you are worthy of worship and help us to turn to you and practice that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you are new or if you're just visiting with us this morning, we just started a new series last week going through the book of Jeremiah, and we're calling the series Build and Plant. So if you are new to the Bible or to the Old Testament, Jeremiah is a prophet, and he was commissioned by God to go and to give a message to God's people. And as Joel talked about last week, Jeremiah's mission can kind of be summed up uh, in this verse from chapter 1. So I'm going to read it again this morning. It says, See today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, and to build and to plant. So you can see where we got the name from the series. We're not that original. Uh, We're calling it Build and Plant because this is big part of what Jeremiah's mission to God's people is. Jeremiah is to go and tell the people, hey, you have strayed from worshiping God, and you have all this stuff in your hearts and in you as a people that needs to be uprooted and overthrown so that I can build and plant the good stuff. Last week, Joel used an example of a garden, uh, talking about how before you can plant the things that you want to be there, the vegetables, the flowers, whatever it is, you have to go in and you have to pull out all the weeds, right? You have to dig up, you have to till the soil, you have to make it habitable for those new plants. And I'm not an expert in building anything, uh, but I'm assuming the same is true when you build things, right? You need to go in, you need to tear everything up so that you can level it out so that what you build has a strong foundation uh, and can be built well and uh, can last. So Jeremiah's message, that's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to call the people to repent from their sin and to turn and worship and follow God so that he can build and plant through them. And today I'm going to be talking about chapter 2 in the book of Jeremiah. So we're picking up where we left off. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, chapters 2 through 6 sort of contain these messages that Jeremiah gave to the people on behalf of God. And in these messages, the main themes that you see show up over and over are that he's confronting them for not following God. He's urging them to turn back and to follow God. He warns them about the trouble that's going to be coming their way if they don't do that. And then he also promises God's restoration and brings comfort. So if Jeremiah is all about uprooting and tearing down on one hand and building and planting on the other, chapter two is all about the uprooting and tearing down. So today's message is gonna be, uh, it's gonna be more on that side of it. And you might ask, what is he confronting? Why does he have to do this process of 
kind of confronting them and telling them that they need to tear these things down. So at this point in history, God's people are worshiping idols that are not God, and they're following other religious practices of the people and the nations around them. And one of the examples that gets highlighted that's kind of like the extreme end of it is that some of these religious practices even require sacrificing of children. And so some of these God's people have gone so far into these other practices that they're doing something so terrible and horrible as sacrificing children in order to please these um, gods that aren't really gods. And with all of this, it's because of their fear, right? They're afraid that God is not there, that God is not showing up for them, and that they need to go find something else. So another thing that we often see Jeremiah confronting is that these people are trusting in political alliances rather than trusting in God. So the big point today that Jeremiah makes in this chapter, um, and that applies both to us as God's people currently and to the people in Jeremiah's time, is that we abandon God and run after empty idols when we forget the gospel story. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We abandon God and run after empty idols when we forget the gospel story. So let's start with the first part of that, that we abandon God because we forget the gospel story. Jeremiah 2 starts with God remembering the relationship between him and his people as it used to be. So it starts in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. So you see, he's like, I remember how great this was. I remember how much you loved me when we started out. But then later in the chapter, he goes on and he compares it to how things are now. He says, oh, sorry, I don't have a slide there. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord." So as you read Jeremiah chapter 2, you'll be able to tell that God feels very strongly about this. His emotions come through in this uh, message that he has Jeremiah give. He uses super strong words, and you can tell that he feels really hurt by the actions of his people and the way that they've treated him. Honestly, if you read it, it feels a little bit to me like uh, the text message you write after getting broken up with that you don't ever actually send, hopefully, because your friends stop you. Uh, but things where you say, like, you know, here are all the reasons that I should have been the one to break up with you, not the other way around, and sort of this, like, how could you do this to me, uh, all while still hearing that they still really care about this person. There's still love there, even though they feel hurt. And the crazy thing is that God actually would have the right to send that text message. I wouldn't advise you to do it if you are not God. Uh, but because he is holy and he is faithful to his people and his people just continue to turn away from him, uh, he actually has the right to be able to say these things. And he goes on to compare the way he feels and the relationship between him and his people with the relationship of a husband and a wife. He sort of uses a metaphor here. 
And he compares their idolatry, the people of God's idolatry, to adultery. He accuses them of being unfaithful and sexually promiscuous, and he laments the fact that they seem to have no interest in turning back and being with him. And one of the things that's really stood out to me in this passage is that it's a reminder that God makes himself vulnerable to us when he enters into relationship with us. This is something he really does care and love, and when we continue to turn away from him, it hurts him because he's made himself vulnerable in loving us. But even though you can see how hurt God is in this passage, it's clear that he still loves his people. And he calls on that love and says, don't you remember what it was like in the beginning when you still loved me, when things were great? Don't you remember how great it was when we were together? He goes on in Jeremiah. I'm going to continue to read some parts of it, uh, of chapter 2. Here he draws on this Exodus story that's a big part of their relationship history. In verse 5 he says, What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. So he retells this story or or calls back to this story of a big pivotal moment in the history of the relationship with God and his people. For God's people, the exodus was this incredible thing that showed that God's love for them and his care for them. At the time of the Exodus, the Israelites, the people of God, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God showed up and led them to freedom and led them to the land that he promised them. It's something that if you read through the Old Testament, it's often called back to. The people of God remember it in the Psalms when they're praising God, um, but God calls back to it too through his prophets and other writings. He's like, hey, remember this thing, this big piece of our relationship and our history. He's saying, it was the start of something beautiful. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember what I did for you and how I showed my love to you? Don't you remember how much you loved me in return? Last weekend, Joel and I were visiting some friends who have known us um, since before we were together. And somehow, as we were talking, we got onto the conversation of how we all met and kind of first impressions when we met, what we thought of each other, um, and when we sort of knew, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be friends with that person. Like, this is just, you know, we just sort of click. This is just going to happen. And it was also funny to think back. These friends, they were married at the time, uh, and they played a big role in helping Joel and I get together. Um, They encouraged Joel to ask me out, even though uh, he was afraid to at certain points. And they sort of knew, like, they were talking to each of us and then talking to each other, which we did not know about that part. Um, but it was fun to, to think back on that, right? To reminisce about how, whether it's friendship or romantic relationship, those origin stories, those times where you're like, oh yeah, that was the moment that I knew we were going to be friends. Or yeah, this is how we came together. Remember what it was like back then? How we were like nervous but excited and it was like just this new crazy thing that felt so good. There's something about telling these types of stories that reminds us of what brings us together. It reminds us of why we love those people or why we want to be in relationship with them. And if you think about how telling these stories reminds us as humans, 
of why we care about our relationships, why we might want to invest in them, then think about how much more telling the story of the Exodus, this story where people were enslaved, people were crying out for freedom, crying out for God, and he shows up in the most miraculous way, leads them out of slavery into this new freedom, this new promised land. Think about how much more that type of a story that has such a big implication would cause us to remember to want to love God, to want to return to that relationship and worship him. So God's calling back on that. He's trying to get them to remember. Don't you remember why we were together, why you worshiped me, why you followed me? But unfortunately, in the time of Jeremiah, uh, somewhere along the line, they forgot this story. The story no longer became real to them, and they abandoned God. And because they forgot, they now are running after other things other than God to satisfy them. They're trying to worship anything other than him because they've forgotten what it was like in the beginning, what their relationship was like, and what God had done for them. So now they're running after what Jeremiah calls empty idols. So because we forget the gospel story, we run after empty idols. I think this is true of us as well. In verse 5 of chapter 2, Jeremiah says this. He says, They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And another way to translate worthless here is empty. So you could say they followed empty idols and became empty themselves. And the idea behind this, the principle here in this verse, is something that we talk about in other places of scripture and other times in church, uh, and something that I think we can all understand. It's basically the idea that we become like what we worship. So we talk about how when we worship Jesus, we become more Christ-like, right? We talk about how that's our goal, that's uh, one of the things that we want to do as we follow Jesus and worship him. And so if it's true that if we worship Jesus, we become more like Jesus, we have to think that the opposite is also true. If we worship something else, we become more like those other things or ideas or people. And maybe this is something that's hard to wrap your head around because we don't have um, physical idols that we worship in the way that the people in the time of Jeremiah did, right? We're not bowing down to stone statues. We're not making sacrifices at wooden altars or different things like that. But if you think about the idea, try to simplify it a little bit more, that we become like what we worship, you can just tell we become like the people we spend a lot of time around. We become like the things that we do or the media that we consume or the ideas that we think about. Uh, maybe when you were a kid, you had a teacher who told you to make sure you sit by, uh, make a good choice with when, who you sit by in class. Because they knew that if you sat by the kids who were distracting and, you know, causing problems, that you were probably going to also be distracted and maybe get sucked into that. Whereas if you sat by the kids who were, you know, maybe the good influences, then they would have a positive influence on you. Or maybe now as an adult, you look back and think about how uh, your parents maybe had a certain friend of yours that they weren't a huge fan of. And anytime you wanted to hang out with them, they were like, ugh. Okay, I guess. Uh, and you're like, why? This person's great. They're so much fun. Like, every time I'm with them, it's just crazy and so fun. And now as an adult, you're like, oh, yeah, I see, I see where my parents were coming from there. 
Well, I think that this is true, and maybe these are silly examples, but the idea that we become like what we worship, what we put our energy and our time and our mind towards is something that is not so silly when it's uh, negative things or things that have real consequences in life. When it's not just being influenced by your friends, but being consumed with someone or something in your life. Some examples might be when we start to worship money and everything in our lives and everyone just starts to become a dollar sign in our mind. Or when we worship productivity and we treat everyone and everything as something on our to-do list that can be crossed off. Or maybe when we worship pleasure and we just see everyone and everything in terms of, well, what am I going to get out of that? How is that going to make me feel? Is it going to make me feel happy? God says that when we do these things, we are worshiping empty or worthless idols and becoming empty ourselves. In some ways, he's highlighting how these idols in the the time of Jeremiah, the things that they're worshiping, are literally just man-made objects. They're just made of wood or stone, and that's it. There's nothing else behind them. There's nothing else inside of them. They are just some physical object. And he's trying to point out to the people how ridiculous it is that they would worship something so empty like that. He's saying it doesn't even make any logical sense when you think about it. And when you, even though it makes no logical sense and there's nothing behind these things, it is actually changing you. It is changing your heart and who you are. You're becoming like what you worship, something that is dead, something that is empty, and something that is worthless. He goes on in the passage to talk about how ridiculous it is that people are worshiping idols uh, in verse 13 where he says this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, we've been talking about abandoning God, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So God's switching metaphors here now on us. He's starting a new one, and he's describing himself as living water uh, and everything else that the people of God are worshiping or putting their trust in as broken cisterns. And I think we get the idea of living water. It's basically just any kind of running water, so like a spring or anything like that. Uh, And in Jerusalem, they actually had a spring on the east side of their city, so they knew what that was. When God talked about it, it would have been very clear in their mind because it was a part of their community and their everyday life. But what are cisterns? Okay, a cistern, I tried to find a good picture, and I couldn't really find one online. Um, But they're these containers that people would create by digging into the ground, uh, and then they were there to catch water so that the water could be used later. So the best uh, visual I can give you is think of it like a rain barrel, but one that's in the ground, like an underground rain barrel. So they had to cut into the ground, into the rock or the clay, uh, and then they had to like try to plaster the sides so that the water would stay in this cistern. But oftentimes, they would get cracks in them because they live in a hot climate and they didn't have the same type of tools and materials that we have now. And so these uh, cisterns that would hold the rainwater would eventually get cracks and the water would just leak right out. So maybe you'd get water when it rained, but you'd come back and it would be empty. And you might think like, well, cisterns actually doesn't sound like a bad idea. It's kind of a smart thing when you think about it to like dig and so you have more water. But let me give you some pros and cons to each side. So a spring of water, one of the great things about it is that it's unlimited, right? It is 
uh, not going to stop. You don't have to worry about it drying up. It's always there. And another pro is that it's clean. Running water is cleaner than stagnant water, water that's just been sitting there for a while. So on one hand, you have the spring of living water that is unlimited, clean, always there for you. You, don't have, you also don't have to do anything, right? It's just there. And on the other hand, you have these cisterns that first you have to dig them, which would be a lot of work. Then you had to wait until it rained so that you could get some water. It could only collect as much water as the cistern holds. So as big as you make it, as much effort as you put into it, that's only as much water as you're getting. Cracks meant the water could easily leak out. And it's also dirty water because it's been sitting there, stagnant, uh, with no, you know, they didn't have like filters. Like they don't have a Brita picture, pitcher that they can like filter that water through before they drink it. So God is saying, why would you leave me the running unlimited supply of water for something that gives you lower quality water, has a limited supply, and it leaks. It literally doesn't even work the way that you want it to. He's just trying to illustrate how ridiculous it is that the people of God are choosing this over him. He's saying, you're so turned around that you can't even tell that there's something easy, unlimited, uh, clean for you right here in your city, and you're so, you, don't, you have your back turned to it. You can't even see that it's there, and you are digging these cisterns that are just going to continue to crack and leak and be empty. But again, here's the deal. They've forgotten the story that they're living in. They've forgotten that God has always been faithful to them, that he provides for them, that he loves them. They've gotten so turned around that they can't even remember what's good for them and what isn't. And as I was thinking about this and as I was reading some of the uh, commentaries about it, I'm guessing, and other people think this too, that they probably didn't forget the story overnight. The time between the Exodus and the time of Jeremiah is about 800 years. It's our best guess. Uh, and my guess is that they turned to these idols over time. It sort of became a part of the culture. Maybe they had other people around them that were doing it. And over time, they probably didn't even realize that what they were doing was so problematic. And I think this happens to a lot of us. We live and work and have relationships in the world and that's a good thing. But slowly, if we aren't actively choosing to worship God, we can get sucked into the ways of the world. We can get sucked into worshiping these broken cisterns. It's like the urban legend, which uh, maybe you've heard this before, but that if you put a frog in a pot of water, uh, if you put it in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put it in a pot of water and then turn the dial and start heating up the water, it won't notice that slowly getting hotter and hotter, and eventually it will die. And I think that this is often what happens with us. So I want to talk a little bit about one of the ways that I, I see this play out um, and that I've heard described. This is not unique uh, to me. It's not even my idea. Uh, a few years ago, I was listening to a podcast called This Cultural Moment. Uh, it's led by two pastors named Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer. Uh, and it stuck with me because they so poignantly described like the culture that we live in and how it's similar oftentimes to what we want to in our worship of God, what we want our lives to look, but it's just slightly different. And how over time we can get sucked into uh, worshiping the ways of the world more than worshiping God. 
And it's really helpful because they kind of lay it out and they, they do it with language that we'd be familiar with if we were talking about like what it looks like to live as a Christian life. So they talk about things like, you know, what culture might say sin is or what culture might say salvation is. So I want to give you a, just a little snippet of it. I encourage you to go listen to the whole podcast because it's really, really good. Um, but I want to just highlight this because I think it's helpful for us to, to sort of check. Are we, are we remembering the gospel story or are we slowly drifting towards the story that we get told every day uh, in the world? So in this podcast, uh, they talk about what people might say sin is today. You know, maybe they wouldn't use the word sin, but if we were to apply our understanding of it, this is what they might say. They might say that sin is anything that makes us feel overwhelmed, makes us feel uncomfortable, basically just anything that makes us feel bad, right? Low self-esteem, uh, and sometimes it's caused by real things like trauma, um, but sometimes it's, you know, we might think like, they gave it, again, this is, these are their, their examples, so if you feel um, like, I don't know, convicted by it, don't, don't come to me, you know, they're the ones who, who gave these examples. But they talk about how binding commitments might be seen as sin, responsibilities, adulthood, because it makes us feel bad, uh, externally given identities, so anyone, anything someone tries to tell you that you should be, basically anything difficult is what our culture might say sin is. So then if you think about, okay, well, then how do we be saved from this sin? How do we deal with these bad things? Uh, the world might say, well, you just get rid of the bad things, right? Cut it out. If it doesn't serve you, get rid of it. Uh, if you have people in your life who you don't like, then don't be around them, even if they're your family or other people that, you know, maybe you should stay in contact with. It's all about finding your true self, right? Live authentically and live autonomously. If there's anything that makes you feel uncomfortable in the world, just pull the ripcord, get rid of it, uh, just drop it. And so if you follow that, then the mission behind all of it would be to be your truest self, right? Follow your heart and ultimately be happy. And I think that uh, this is <laughs> challenging to look at because it's something we see in the media all the time, right? It's something we see on social media. It's probably things we see in people around us. Uh, and if we're really honest, that we see in ourselves, right? I feel like as I look at this, it's always challenging to me to see ways in which I can fall into this mindset that the ultimate goal is to be happy and that I should do everything I can to achieve that. But it stands in contrast to how scripture talks about how we should view the world. So I want to compare the two. The gospel story, the scripture story, tells us that sin is worshiping anything other than God. And sometimes choosing to worship God over other things in our lives is uncomfortable, right? So it stands in contrast to that. And then therefore salvation is to turn from our sin and to worship Jesus, to find our identity in him. Instead of going out to find our identity, you know, maybe you're like, I just got to get rid of all the commitments in my life and I got to go, uh, I don't know, camping or I got to go like start a whole new career or whatever it is. It's, we, those things aren't necessarily bad, but it's not going to help you find your identity. If we look at the story of scripture and the gospel story, it tells us that we're only going to find our identity in Jesus. And then therefore the goal uh, is to be more Christ-like, to follow Jesus, and to be holy. And that means sometimes doing hard things. 
but it also leads to ultimate contentment. Maybe not happiness, maybe not pleasure that we feel in moments when we have big things happen, but it leads to a deeper joy and contentment when we're following Jesus instead of just trying to follow our own heart. And maybe you look at these and think, yeah, but that other one sounds way more fun. (laughs) Uh, That's my gut reaction. So I understand if that's how you feel. But the truth is that focusing on happiness and pleasure and things that make us feel good is ultimately not going to lead to life. It won't last. It's like a broken cistern that we constantly have to dig again, refill, fix the cracks, and wait for it to rain. In the the podcast, one of the pastors talks about this and saying, uh, as soon as the trip is over, you need to plan another one. As soon as the glass is empty, you need a refill. As soon as the romantic spark is gone, you need a new partner. That's what's going to happen if we continue to seek happiness as our ultimate goal. It's broken cisterns. It's never going to give us true, lasting, living water. And one of the biggest differences I see when I kind of compare the way the world thinks about these things to the way that, I, that Scripture does is that one side is all about worshiping self, right? You're all about finding your identity, finding your happiness, finding your autonomy. And the other side is all about worshiping God, remembering that Jesus is the one that gives us our ultimate identity, that we can follow him, and that he is worthy of worshiping over anything else. Because any story powered by our own efforts is going to fail and lead to emptiness. But any story powered by a relationship with God is going to lead to true living water. And there's good news here, because the gospel story is so much better than the broken cisterns we dig. Jesus himself picks up on this in his own ministry. Uh, There's a story in the book of John where Jesus talks to a woman at a well, which is basically like an above-ground cistern, right? See, we're picking up on some of this thing from Jeremiah. Uh, And he asks the woman for a drink of water. And she's confused at first for a lot of reasons. Uh, People like Jesus didn't talk to people like her in that time. Um, And Jesus also showed up without anything to actually get water out of the well. And so she asks him, how are you going to get water? And Jesus responds with a somewhat cryptic answer, as he does. Uh, But it actually makes sense when you think about the context of Jeremiah. So I want you to listen to what he says. In John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And later on in the book of John, Jesus announces, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So he's saying, hey, if you turn to me, turn away from all these broken cisterns that you continue to dig, and turn to me, you will have living water. Living water that lives within you through God, his spirit dwelling with you and water that leads to eternal life. Jesus is the only water that will ultimately satisfy us. He's the living water, the stream of running clean water that's right in front of us if we turn to him. We can trust in him and that we never would have to rely on those broken cisterns that we dig again. He's always available and his water will always satisfy. So how do we take that first step towards living water? I think the very first thing we have to do is repent. That's what Jeremiah was calling the people of God to do all those years ago, and it still holds true for us. 
we have to acknowledge that we often forget the gospel story, that we turn to broken cisterns, whatever they are in your life, whether it's how uh, the podcast described it or if there are other things that you are drawn to worship, whether it's success or power or money or relationships, whatever it is, we have to acknowledge that we often do that uh, and we don't turn to God, we turn to other things. And this repentance, it, it takes time <laughs> because usually unless there's something that like makes us feel really embarrassed or ashamed um, or someone else calls us on something, our sin isn't usually right at the top of our mind. So sometimes it takes time, it takes reflection for us to be able to truly repent in a way that is uh, full and real and coming from our heart. And it matters that we take time because without doing that, we're just going to continue to dig those broken cisterns. We need to acknowledge our sin before God. We need to confess it to him and to other people in our church family. And I'm not saying you need to wallow in your sin, right? That's not helpful. But we do need to acknowledge it and to know that it hurts God. It's not what he wants in our relationship with him. And if all of that feels really hard or really heavy, I want to give you a piece of encouragement. If you feel challenged by this, that's a good thing. In Jeremiah's time, this is what his message was all about, was to challenge the people to help them turn and repent from those things. And in 40 years of his ministry, that never really happened. People were hard-hearted, they didn't want to turn to worship Jesus, and they didn't repent or to worship God. Jesus wasn't there yet. Uh, So if you're feeling challenged by this and you're feeling a desire to repent, that's huge. That's way more than what we saw from a lot of people in the time of Jeremiah. That means that the Spirit of God is working in your heart. That means that your heart is soft enough to be open to God's message. And that means you want to follow Jesus and that he's already working in your life. So if you do feel challenged by this, I hope it also encourages you that God is working in you and that you can trust in that. Second piece of encouragement I want to give is that when we do repent, Jesus is right there for us. There's no shaming. There's no making us feel bad because we screwed up in the first place. There's grace and the offer of living water. No questions asked. God doesn't cancel us or cut us out of his life, even though our relationship with him can often be toxic from our end. He's always there waiting for us to come back to him. All you have to do is turn to him, and he will graciously be there with open arms, willing to continue that relationship and to show, continue to show you his love and his grace. And then we get to live in that gospel story that he has written for us. We get to worship him, the spring of living water, in everything we do, continuing to turn to him every day. And if you need a practical way to kind of hold on to that gospel story, right, because we've talked about how forgetting the gospel story is what often leads to us running after other things, running after empty idols. So if you need a practical way to remember the gospel story this week, I'll leave you with this. Remember how your relationship with God started. Maybe it's just starting now, and that's a really beautiful thing. Or maybe it was sometime in college or high school, or maybe you grew up following Jesus from a very young age. If that's true, I think sometimes people feel like, well, I've always kind of followed Jesus, so like, I don't really have a story. 
I don't think you should feel bad about that at all. Instead, I think you should praise God that he put you in an environment where you were able to learn and hear Jesus' message right from the beginning. But for, other, for others of you, maybe there's a time or a moment in your life where you felt like you really decided to make your faith your own. Uh, maybe you find a picture from that time of life. I often like to look back at the picture from my baptisms. Uh, I still kind of laugh at this picture in particular because you can see how tall the other guys I got baptized with were. And so we're like walking out into the lake and I'm like, I'm going to get baptized before we even get out there because they're just going to keep going. And I was the sh by far the shortest one. Um, so they stopped for me. Uh, and I love looking back at this picture because it reminds me of a time in my life where I really, God just really showed up to me in a very presence. His presence was very um, real to me. I had gone through a lot in the couple of years leading up to his baptism. I had spent a lot of time grieving. I spent a lot of time hurting. Uh, and God just showed up to me in such a big way. He was there for me. He showed me his love and his grace and his mercy in ways that I hadn't experienced it before. And so I chose to get baptized to publicly declare that, to uh, mark that time in history in my life, uh, and to celebrate what God had done. And so I like looking back at these pictures because it reminds me of that. It reminds me of the gospel story that God has been writing in my own life. So maybe you have something like that. Maybe it's not a picture from your baptism, but it's from something else. Um, or maybe if you don't have that, maybe this week you take some time to tell somebody else your story. Get together with someone. Ask them their story. Be able to tell them yours. Uh, or maybe you take some time to write it out. If you've never done that before, it can be a really great way to Remember what God has done to praise him. And then you have something that when you're in a dark time or when you're struggling to remember that story, you can go back and read that and remember that God has been faithful to you. And today, we're also going to end by taking some time to remember this by doing communion. So every Sunday, we end uh, by taking communion as we worship through song. Because again, it's a reminder of that gospel story. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done, how he came to earth lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again victoriously to defeat sin and death. So we are going to take some time now uh, as we wrap up to worship through song and also to take communion. Um, and also if you need prayer for anything, we will have someone in the back. I believe Joel's going to be in the back today. Um, and if you want to take time to pray, uh, we'd love to encourage you to do that. I'll just say I'm not someone who... Um, really liked to pray out loud before. It was really kind of a struggle for me. Uh, and it wasn't until I started praying with other people, people that I knew and that I trusted, that I realized, like, wow, this is really powerful, and I actually really enjoy this. And so if it's not something you enjoy, I encourage you to, like, practice it or take little baby steps towards it, because you might find, once you do it, that it's actually far more enjoyable than you think. So if you need prayer for anything, um, Joel will be in the back. Uh, and then we're going to take communion. We're gonna, and as we do, I encourage you, to repent, take some time to think of those things that you want to repent from, to turn from, uh, and then just to praise God and remember the gospel story that he has invited us to be a part of. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will continue, uh, through, continue to worship through song and communion. Heavenly Father, uh, we do just praise you that you have written such a beautiful gospel story and that you have offered to allow us be a part of it. Um, even though we don't deserve it, even though we've continued to turn away from you and to uh, run after other empty idols, you've continued to allow us to be a part of your story, to be a part of your mission, to be a part of your kingdom. 
So Lord, we praise you for that. Um, We ask that you'd be with us this week as we take time to repent of the ways that we haven't followed you uh, and to give us grace as we continue to follow you in whatever ways you call us to. In your name we pray, amen.